listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, this is Al Martin. This week on the podcast, I'm going to take the chance to share some of my own thoughts about data. This is a keynote that I gave in last year. I believe it was October. It was in the Big Data Summit KC conference. KC in terms of Kansas City, which for those of you listening, that's the best place on earth. I shared this keynote with IBM fellow Sam Lightstone. Let's be honest, I did all the, the, the light work, and he jumps into the product demos to make it real. But I hope this provides a greater understanding of data, at least my perspective. Comments are always welcome. Please let us know how we're doing in the podcast, wherever whatever format you may be listening in. And I appreciate all of you that have reached out to me to share your data stories. Thanks again and talk to you next time. Responsibility for all things data at IBM. I hold responsibility for client success for analytics. So two out of three of my passions being data, the client experience, and leadership. And though I would say that uh, the, the data and client experience tend to be you know, core to everything we do in the, in the industry right now. But I am from Kansas City, uh, which is great for me because um, a lot of people ask, <laughs> you know, how are you an IBM exec and living in Kansas City? And I'll tell you that uh, my family lives here and I reside on a plane for the most part, which is good, though, because uh, this week, unfortunate to Sam, and I'll introduce him in a, in a second, I, uh, I get to sleep in my own bed today. So this is fabulous for me. Today, I am going to talk about modernizing your data platform, and I'm also going to talk about making data simple, accessible, and ready for Al. A lot of people say ready for AI, I say ready for Al, because if, if, if you had a name like Al, then uh, you see it in every piece of literature that's out there today. So it's like, it's like, it's like a dog and a squirrel. Everything I read is like, oh, oh that's not my name. I mean, I'm not kidding you. This is a real problem for me. I'm the fifth, so... You know, my whole name has been a problem whether I'm traveling, now it's AI, I continually struggle. So, in addition to that, so what we're going to do today is, hopefully I scare you a little bit, I'm going to talk about the future, and then I'm going to talk about the path to get there. And then, if that weren't enough, I have a special guest today, Mr. Sam Lightstone, who is an IBM fellow, this is where everybody goes, ooh because it's an IBM fellow. No, he's much smarter than me, and he's going to take everything that I have and, and make it tangible, make it real. We're going to have some demos at the end. So I'll try to hurry, but uh, not be too quick, if you will. So, and I will have a little bit of fun. Disclaimer, which is worthless. All right, I'm going to jump into... All right, so I had, a, I had a speech at UMKC not too long ago, talking with students, and the period of disruption. I'm not going to go into that pitch too much, but uh, we talk about continuously learning as part of that pitch, and I believe it to be so. I mean, it's fine. If you're, if you're taking your degree, you read a lot, you continuously learn, you're in good shape in this environment. If, if you're trying to stay the same, you might think about retirement at this day and age because it, it's moving and it's moving fast. So I thought this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, I've got another one to compliment it. God, I want to look back, and that's like huge. Um, so has anybody seen this before? If you've seen it, then, then, then don't answer my next question. Can anybody see the car in this photo? 
This is, this is 1900, Fifth uh, Avenue in, in, on Easter Sunday in New York. Well, Fifth Avenue, New York. Can anybody see, see the car amongst all of the horse and buggies? Nobody? Nobody? Kind of tough? I'll just point it out. Oh, how would I do here? I'll point it out for you. There it is. That is the one car among all the horse and buggies, 1900 in Easter Fifth Avenue. So, let me fast forward 13 years, Fifth Avenue, Easter, and now it's, it, it's, in, it's in 1913. Now can you see the horse and buggy? Oh boy, what was that? It's right there. It's kind of hard, hard to depict. Sorry, I, I don't have a clicker, so I'm going to go back and forth. If you guys do have a clicker, I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate it because I like to walk a lot. So in 13 years, you know, you see one horse and buggy, and I can't Im- imagine that horse being able to withstand all these, these new cars driving by almost completely um, obliterated in terms of uh, disruption. And that's when disruption was slow, right? And the interesting thing to me about this is the government even got involved, as you might imagine, and they were able to get licenses, everything squared away, and still transform the industry. So it can happen, and it will happen. So let's dive in. I'll come back to that in, in a bit. Next thing I want to talk about is data monetization. They're predicting by 20... 25, 180 zettabytes of big, uh, big data and analytics. I, I can't comprehend what that means, but I know it's 350 million times what's in YouTube today. That's what we're going to be up, to, up against here very, very shortly. And, you know, we're talking about untapped potential. Everybody's talking data, data. If you look at the, if you look at the data right now, and from IDC... They'll tell you by 2020, uh, big data an- uh, analytics is going to be 203 billion. That is a 12% CAGR rate that started like from 130 billion in 2016. So big changes ahead and a, and a great opportunity probably for everybody listening out there. So where Batman is, here's the one thing I would say to you. You've probably overheard the saying, data is the new oil. And uh, actually, I think that's a great analogy. I think it continues to be a great analogy. Because most of you may know that oil, 20% is on the surface, you know, think tar pits. 80% is well below the Earth's surface. And you've got to find it. You've got to refine it. Uh, you gotta, you've got to extract it, bring it to the surface. You know, crude oil isn't going to do you any good. You've got to cleanse it, essentially refine it, so you can really, really hit gold, right? That is no different than data today. 20% is, is accessible, 80% is not. Those institutions that find that 80% will hit gold, I promise you. Some of them are doing it in unique fashion, maybe in uh, minute subsets, but that, that, that is the game. There's a reason everybody's going after your data right now. So as if that weren't enough, it's like people have forgotten about data. Now they're going straight into AI, and that's all you hear, straight into Al, right? (laughs) 
with the promise of transforming industry. So by 2021, AI augmentation will generate $2.9 trillion of business, business value. There was actually a study done that you can, you can research out there by two Oxford economists in 2013 that said there is 47% of U.S. jobs have a very strong likelihood of being alleviated in 20 years, meaning uh, 2033. 47%, and, and, well, they, and they went down the, down the list, which is interesting. I mean, you can go see it. I mean, they just put their money where their mouth is. It's a very interesting, it's a pretty long article. But, like, by example, referees, 98% gone. That strikes me as kind of funny because we'd have to have somebody out there just looking like they're doing something, I would imagine. But um, then they had cashiers, 97% alleviated. Uh, chefs, it was nine, 96% gone. You can go do the, look at it 20, 20 years. So you can be a naysayer and say, hey, don't worry, that's not going to happen. Uh, now, I'm not, I, I'm not one of these, these scare tactics, or I'm not, I'm, I'm not on that, that wave of thinking. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity with continuous learning. Let me, uh, let me, let me say, well, let me say one thing before I go on before. I, when you think that may be unlikely, if you go back to the car analogy that I gave you, you know, that was, in, well, in, I think it was 20, or, or Sorry, 1916. 1916 is when the Model T started going through production, I think, uh, and, and it really came out. By 1920, all of the cities had alleviated a horse and buggy. It was all cars. It didn't take, though, until 19, around 19, I think, 39. We had to go through the Great Depression. But 1939, when it was really, I mean, you weren't going to see a horse and buggy anywhere. So, I don't know. Uh, that's, you know, 23 years. So that prediction could be pretty well founded. And the only reason, you know, the, the, the folks that got in early, like the cities, they were able to move quick. And that's where you saw, you know, by 2020, every city looked like New York. So, so let's talk about why. And then I'll get back to data eventually here. But in terms of why, we make 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000 decisions I think on the weekend, my wife probably takes 10,000 of those. That's my augmented intelligence right there. But 35,000 on average. So you get up in the morning. You think about what time you're going to get up. You think about whether you're going to work out. For me, that's a 10-minute cycle, thinking I'm going to feel guilty if I don't work out. No, maybe I should work out. No, I, I, let me reward myself today. Then you get into what you're going to wear. I mean, Steve Jobs, I think, had it right where he had you know, a, a turtleneck, Levi's in, in New Balance every day because he got the idea that, uh, you know, ex excellent decisions are finite. So he's going to take the ones that uh, don't make sense out of, the, out of that decision process so he could get to the stuff that is a priority. But we can, artificial intelligence can automate much of this. That's the bottom line. A lot of the repetitiveness. And the question is why? And I would say there's three, three reasons of that today. One is data. Digitalization, digitalization is, is such that data is more accessible than it's ever been before, if you've got the ability to grab it. Algorithms, even though I would say machine learning has been around even since the, the 50s, late 50s, and, and certainly in the, in the 70s, but now open sources have perpetuated that. And then maybe most importantly is storage and, and compute, where the, the price of storage and compute has 
dramatically decreased. It means it gives rise to, to the accessibility of, of data. But here's the reality. So I, 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 I had uh, Batman before. Your data isn't ready to leverage AI. I'm here to tell you. I meet with a lot, a lot of clients. I don't want to spoil the show, but um, it's not ready. I'm just realizing this is a cat, too. That's pretty, pretty cute. Nice. So, but that's, if you look at, if you look at data, it, it's not our fault. We can blame it on our predecessor or something. It, it, it's, it's not our fault in that if you talk to, to clients, you know, MIT, by example, will tell you that 81% do not understand the data they really need for AI, right? I think 49% say the data they have is, that they've already studied is certainly not ready for AI. I got to believe there's another 44% or so that just didn't get surveyed relative to my experience. But the reason is, is because it's disparate data types. It's various data types. You got data silos, which is a big one. <laughs> That's Will. I know Will from Hortonworks. Yep. How are you, Will? Uh, we met in, in uh, Silicon Valley not long ago. Uh, data quality challenge, talent, talent shortage, storages, uh, shortages, as well as is, is things like GDPR, PHI that are hitting businesses, businesses today. So this is where I turn the corner and I say there is a path forward. And I think it applies to C-suite executives or developers alike because everybody needs to get on the same frame of, uh, wavelength. And I think it aligns with what I term the maturity curve. And this is the maturity curve from left to right. And all data becomes more accessible as it, you know, as it becomes more accessible, it gains more value. And if you want to be a digital transform, uh, transform, uh, transformative organization, you've got to be insight-driven. And if you're going to be insight-driven, you've got to be data-driven. Going from left to right, you know, if I look at that quadrant, a lot of times I do this with four different quadrants, particularly if I'm meeting with a client, so I'm trying to determine where they are in, in their business cycle so that I can help them get to the right as, as quickly as possible. But, you know, on the left side there, usually we're talking back office, ERP systems, you're trying to move them to warehousing, maybe transactional, maybe analytics, you're, you're going into data lakes, you could be using Hadoop, uh, so you can get uh, sales forecast, um, you can get uh, yield reports, and you do that through business intelligence, different reporting structures. But then if you really want to be data-driven, on top of all that, all those moves, you, you've got to have a culture change that really breaks down silos in the business. One of the biggest problems I see today is sales doesn't talk to finance, finance doesn't talk to sales. I guess that power is in that data. When they start talking to one another, they've got a bigger corpus by which to make a decision. So you discover what, you discover why. Then you make that transition from data-driven to insight-driven, and you go into prediction uh, not just just not just the what and the why, but the prediction and optimizing towards towards outcomes. So essentially, this is where you make the transition over. And you know, a lot of companies then will hire a CDO, chief data officer, and you've got different personas that are coming in, like data engineer, um, data steward, uh, data scientist, you know, you know, and others. And you're driving, you're trying to automate everything. You collaborate, you've broken down those silos, and you're creating models and models that are used with some of your vi visualization uh, technologies. That is a big leap. On the left side that I just got through talking about is spending money to save money. 
The right side is spending money to make money. Because magic starts to happen when you hit that final digital transformation, which is when you're, that you have data-driven business models. What you've done is taken those models, they're learning upon themselves, and they're pushing the envelope by which now you're, you're actually becoming digitized and you're driving those outcomes, meaning no longer is your, your, your product process typically a one-time sell, but you're based on a subscription and really driving those outcomes. That's the path that I try to put uh, clients on. Sometimes I start with you know, one area or another. Sometimes I talk with, start with one model and we move them uh, across the way. Others, they may want to live in the, uh, just on the left side in the data-driven area. Most clients I talk to, if I ask them where they are, they come in pretty proud and they say, I'm way off to the right. We got it. There's, you know, I, that's not exactly true. About 20% admit right off front that they're, they're, they're still on the, the left side of this, this screen. And, uh, but the bottom line is everybody turns out to be, at, at best, as you can see, I've got this little part that says most are here. There's some place in the middle. And I'm trying to push them from left to right as, most as, uh, as much as possible. All right. But here's the thing. It's tough. People are having a, a, a slow start at it. Uh, but we should have a sense of urgency right now. And I truly believe that. Not only is it my passion, but, I mean, if you look at history, not just cars, but where the business is, you know, things are changing. They're changing rapidly. I'd make the case that since 2007, the iPhone came out and then beyond, uh, we've been surpassing Moore's Law. So one astounding uh, piece of uh, percentages or piece of fact here that I'll give you, and by the way, as I finish through this, the, this pitch, I base everything based on fact, and you can make your own determinations here, but 52% of the Fortune 500 uh, companies have either gone bankrupt, been acquired, or ceased to exist since 2000. That's astounding. And, and, and more than that... If you're an investor, if you look like the S&P 500, I think that started in 1957. And uh, in 2007, only 18 of the original companies remained there. And since 2012, 2012, every two weeks a company has been replaced on average. So if you do the math on that, that is... 75% of the companies are going to be replaced in the S&P 500 within 15 years. So I know that that is, you know, S&P 500 typically represents the top, um, you know, the, the, the big cap, cap stocks or large cap stocks, but that's going to apply to everybody. I mean, that's all the way down. So you can look at your neighbor and you can pretty much figure that in 15 years they're going to be changed one way or another. But... The good news is there are companies, uh, hopefully like IBM, I'm not going to give you IBM as an example because I want to be objective, uh, but there are many companies out there that are getting it done. One, is, one example is a Legion Air that I'm impressed with, and I'll give you their example. They, um, they are a big data company with planes. That's what they consider themselves. I mean, they've changed their culture so they can, that, that they embody that, that concept. In fact, by example, they're really moving into what they call value-added services. And by that, I mean they have services that they're selling, not just, you know, the, the, the air flights and, and whatnot. They're selling service, service, services like hotels, um, you know, rental cars, but also just flat-out entertainment uh, that they're, they're pushing to clients. And now it represents 30% of their revenue. And 
More than that, they figured out that 94% of their clients are, are, are mobile or they're online, so that they're integrating that technology with mobile and IoT so they can give real-time decisions, whether you're in an airport or otherwise, so they can make suggest suggestions on, on pushing that value-added uh, service. Second is AMC. Hold on just a second. I'm going to get a drink. Hope this is for me. <laughs> um, second thing is, is value-added services. <laughs> or, sorry, AMC. Lost my thought. So AMC is a really good customer of, of IBM because they've really used our technology to the nth degree. And what they're doing is they're doing using machine learning, hybrid cloud, appliances, uh, and data warehouse on cloud so that they can put it all together. And as a result, they're able to propose uh, new marketing. They're able to, to, to essentially, well, let me give you an example. Uh, Mad Men, they do Walking Dead. They do say on Mad Men, they actually, during a broadcast, can do analytics and machine learning that we've, we've worked with them on so they can identify who their audience is and be able to give them a promo in flight while, while, the, while the, the episode is going, which is pretty impressive. They do that. They're also, you know, there used to be a thing as a pilot. They're predicting how successful that their shows are going to be so they don't have to expense or, yeah, do the hefty expense in terms of appliances. So they're really doing it well. And, again, it took that culture change that they, they embody. So, hey, everybody wants AI and they want it now. So I'm going to give you bad news again. Sorry. But um, I think most, most clients are not ready. And, and what we often say is afraid is, is there's no AI without IA, meaning there's no artificial intelligence without um, integ integrated architecture. And so here, here's the best way I could describe it. And I'll give you the path that we work with clients, and I encourage everybody needs to be on a very similar path. And that is, it, it's what we call the ladder to AI. And, and to reverse engineer that, you know, ultimately you're, you're heading towards AI. That's what everybody's ambition is. But you can't do AI, AI without machine learning. You can't do machine learning without um, analytics. You can't do analytics without governance. You can't do governance without uh, having a great um, data infrastructure that sits at the premise, right? So let, let's talk a little bit more about that in terms of collecting data to start, and I'll go back up the ladder, if you will. I'm going to back it with fact, as I always do. 15% of organizations leverage data and analytics today, only 15%. This is what really kills me. 0.5% of all data is actually analyzed. There's a lot of data out there that isn't being even leveraged. And 80% is stored by corporations. That kind of ties to the 80%. That's the oil beneath the surface that uh, many of us can't, can't get to. And look, it's, it's a six-point strategy that we look at. To collect data, you've got to have this comprehensive strategy, and this is the way we look at it. If you're going with any vendor, and we'd like you to go with AI or, or IBM if you'd like to, but um, if you go with any vendor, first of all, it's got to be multi-cloud. That means it's got to be uh, you know, what, what we call private cloud and public cloud. And in fact, it, the statistics on that would show that 33% have a hybrid approach today. And by 2022, 85, 75, 85 percent will have a hybrid approach to their systems. That's just not enterprise. That's SMB just as well. 
Uh, all data, it means it can be structured, unstructured, transactional, analytical, no SQL, SQL. If you're looking at data platforms, it's got to be all different forms of data. It's got to be rest and in motion, so it'd be event-driven uh, event as well as traditional systems. Load and go mean you've got to provision uh, things very, very, very quickly. So to do that, it's got to be containerized. It's got to be in a microservices format. Cloud-native, meaning it's elastic. And I would encourage you, if you're going to choose anybody, you make sure that you've got a separation of compute and storage. So you optimize. And then lastly, built-in AI. AI should be in everything that you do that's, that's built in. So you can make smarter decisions. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. All right. So then let's work up the ladder in terms of organizing. Now, actually, I, th I think data and organization, essentially governance, are the same or, or should be the same level. But you gotta, I, I got to break it out so we can specifically talk to those, those components. Right? Um, so first thing I would say is, as humans, we believe in most we see, even if it's fabricated or manipulated. If there's anything going on in the industry right now, I think hopefully most of you would agree with that. Uh, and, and the problem with visualization today is we've got, you know, companies, including IBM, that do very good at visualization, but we tend to believe it. You've got to make sure you have a very strong governance backing or you don't know what you're looking at. I, I, I had visited a client, and, and I went back like two months later, and we had joked about this before, and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he came back and said, all right, I'm taking this to heart. And I said, what, what changed? And he said, you know, hey, you told me to really drive cadence around my NPS and, you know, what we're doing to <laughs> reduce client churn. I said, yeah. He said, well, I thought our NPS was good. I started doing as you say, went, went underneath the covers, looked at all the customer, you know, what the customer feedback was, and I found that our marketing gentleman, who was motivated and or he was given a bonus based on NPS, was just taking five minutes in there to go in there and change the M NPS number. And we thought it was good, and it's not so good, and now we have a good indication of why our churn is bad. Uh, and so then we started developing a plan after that, but it's simple things like that, right? So... There's 2.5 quintillion bytes of data created, shared, and stored every day. 80% of the time for data scientists, maybe we have some in here, is spent either creating the data, or, or I should say collecting the data, which is about 20%, and then organizing the data is about 60%, which makes 80%. It means it only leaves them 20% to do their day job, the one they were hired for. 91% of organizations are not using their data effectively, and here's the kicker, 3.5 million. That's the average cost of a single data breach. That's up 23% in two years. That's how important governance is. So just like it's built on top of data, you got to be multi-cloud and, and all data, but you got to have cloud microservices, a rich set of microservices that are embedded in all you do. It's one good reason to go with a vendor like IBM because we've got the technologies that cross the whole ladder such that you can embed a consistent layer of metadata. And speaking of metadata, it needs to be open so that it, it's essentially a platform that can be easily integrated with. It cannot be proprietary. If it's a proprietary, you're ultimately going to hit a wall. And then it needs to be persona-specific. In other words, the UI should tailor to a persona, whether it's a data scientist, data engineer, whatever, so you can create, manage, uh, consume that metadata. And then finally, and it's going to be consistent that we, AI is built in just as well.
So let's move up the ladder and talk about analyzing insights, right? This is where it actually gets fun. The way, the way I look at uh, going up the ladder to, so you hit analytics is it's almost like a puzzle. So you've, you've collected the data, you've organized the data, and you got this puzzle you know, that's sitting there on the table. You've turned all the puzzle pieces up so you can see all the pictures. And then you say, oh, the, the table's not big enough. So you move it to another table. You drop about 20 pieces. You pick all those up. You're sure and 100% that you've got all the data, all the pieces over there uh, on the table that you need. You maybe have the outline, and now it's trying to figure out how to put things together. That's my analogy on, on analytics. So it's no different than looking at a picture like this, which is one-third that is missing. I don't know. I'm sure as a team we can figure out what that is. Anybody know what that is? The dog. Very good. You passed the test. Um, you passed the test. Why is it not moving here? Can you, what can you see? All right. Well, I don't know. There's, there's supposed to be two different pictures. That's fine. So the interesting thing about that is, is oh, there it is. It's not on this. Oh, it just won't catch up. Anyway, it's a picture of a dog. <laughs> good work. So that seems intuitive, and it's kind of something that seems silly, but technically it's not a picture. Um, technically, uh, it's, it's, it's not even a dog. It's, it's 1.2 million pixels. That's what that is. And, but the amazing thing about the human brain is, in a matter of seconds, you just did a model. You just put it in your head. You looked at you know, what you had to deal with, and you went and, and were able to identify what I was trying to communicate, which is a picture of a dog. So that seems intuitive, and it is, but now imagine developing a model. That's what a model is. A model is the ability to take all the information before you and, and make the best business or best decision off of. So imagine trying to get a computer to do that, to do what you just did. That's the challenge of creating a model, because you have a model and a recipe in your head. That's the only way you were able to identify that. That's what we're doing, and that's what we're getting to when we analyze data. So it's creating those models like I just described. It's continuously learning from those models. You know, I'm working with a department in IBM, and I've given them a model, and they say it doesn't work. Well, you've got to keep giving me data, feedback, so I can keep learning continuously so it'll learn upon itself. That's what machine learning is about. You've got to optimize outcomes. In order to be successful, and I'm firm with this, it's not just another bullet to make sure that there are six bullets, and that is we've got to bring IoT or IT and the line of business together so we can open up a, an entire, entire corpus of data and leverage it. Then you're able to use visualization properly in terms of what happened. You got a 360 degree of why did it happen, and then you can predict and, and get ahead on what happens next. Right? Once you have that, then you can embed machine learning everywhere as you, as you, as you progress your models and you work your way towards AI. Because here's the thing. It's not moving as fast as it needs to move. Is it there? Anyway, the, the dog that we looked at, when you look at it, all right, so we figured out it's a dog, but now the question is, and what we should be asking is, does, does the dog have a leash on? Is it, is it um, does it have a collar? Is it light or day outside? And, and that's not just about labels. You know, we can ask, you know, what's the health of the dog? 
That's when machine learning starts to take off and you start to approach the boundaries in pushing um, artificial uh, intelligence. So better data, this is a vicious cycle, right? Better data, better models, better decisions. And these are models that require training without innate bias. And I think that's important because there's such a thing as the default effect. Our human brain works such that if we've already made a similar decision once, we'll take the same path. Even if there's little nuances that we don't recognize because we're lazy, we'll take that and move on because we've got to make 35,000 decisions a day. Uh, we've got to continue the repetition and we've got to leverage data and the computing power that, that's available uh, to us today. Right? So one thing, how much time do I got? I got a little bit of time here. Um, I think one of the stories that I told not too long ago that I read in, with, by Michael Lewis, it's called The Undoing Project, I thought was really fitting into uh, what I just mentioned in terms of continuous learning. They, this, was, this is a great book by Michael Lewis, if you get a chance to read it. It's terrific. It's about two uh, uh, e economists, essentially be behavior economists, that did a lot of different studies on our behavior. And in the 1970s, these models aren't new, in the 1970s, they did this little, this little test, and they went to the Oregon Research Institute, and they said, I want you doctors, they brought a bunch of doctors together, they said, I want you doctors to look at uh, the, it was, it was stomach cancer, and come up with a, what you think are the attributes of stomach cancer. So they came together, they identified size, shape, color, crater, all these things, they came up with seven major attributes. And then they sent the, some scientists off to do a, a model and see if they could, you know, see if they could complement that effort. You know, this is before all this data that we have today, et cetera. Not new, 1970s. And then they sent, what they did is they brought all the scientists together and then they said, all right, so here's your seven attributes. Here's the model you gave us. Here's 100 different pictures. I want you to identify which ones are cancerous and which ones are not. They said, all right, cool. They did this. They sent the data off to UCLA. UCLA sends it back. And the scary thing, so the next time you go to the doctor, think about this, the scary thing is not only did they not agree with their peers, they didn't agree with themselves. That's how that bias kicks in, again, in the 1970s. So uh, the model that they had created then beat the doctors more consistently based on the attributes they unobjectively came forward with. So machine learning, if it's based on data-driven information, can change the game, and it's all over the industry with media. I just talked about that in terms of audience prediction, utilities, efficiency opportunities, telco, telco with customer churn and retention. I spent a lot of time with that, particularly with insurance industries as well. I won't go completely around here, but um, retail, you know, a lot of maintenance, predicting maintenance, that's probably one of the, be or the worst costs uh, that a, a company has if they're in retail, if they do a lot of maintenance, if you can predict those and, and avoid it, and, and, uh, and then drive customer services with the goes without saying. But I'll make one last point before I turn it over to the expert, Mr. Sam Lightstone, IBM fellow. And that is um, what the last thing I would really encourage you to do and something that we're doing at IBM is is I think everybody can be a chef in machine learning if they've got all the other pieces. That includes, most importantly, data, my favorite. Uh, IBM is working on a means, already has released a means to give the kitchen. Uh, because we believe, you know, you, if you have the recipe, if you have a meal kit, whatever you use, 
that, you should be free to go work on that. You shouldn't have to go create the toaster, create the microwave, create the refrigerator. That should be inherent to what you're doing. And so what we've done is we've come out with uh, what we call IBM Cloud Private for Data, ICP for Data. So whatever vendor you choose to go with, I would look for the same attributes here that I'm going to describe in a microservices framework so you can focus on the things that matter and make sure that you have all the, element, all the elements of the, the letter to AI that I just described. What ICP for Data is, IBM Cloud Private for Data, is is meant for multiple personas, like data engineers, data stewards, and data scientists. It's, it's you know, fully governed. That's that meta metadata across the entire stack. It's, it's instantly provisioning, provisioned with um, cloud services built on Kubernetes. You can collect data, you can organize data, you can analyze data. It's meant for the private cloud or the cloud. You can push uh, different containers back and forth. So you've got the entire kitchen before you. And then you can just work on the recipe, which is machine learning and making sure that you, you're able to make sure that data is clean and secure. With that, I'm going to turn it over, and you're going to make this real, right? That's I hope so. the pressure you have on you. The only thing else I would, I would promote, uh, if you would, is that I've got a podcast that I do. It comes out once a week. It's called Making Data Simple. And a lot of times I bring in a lot of guests <laughs> to talk about these concepts. You can see that I'm very open, and I push the boundaries, not trying to sell anything from an IBM standpoint, but trying to learn more about uh, data myself. So I'd encourage you to take a listen and let me know what you think. And if you have different areas that you'd like us to, to bring onto the show, we'd be happy to do that. And with that, Mr. Sam Lightstone. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Al. Thanks, buddy. Great. He's awesome, by the way. He's one of the best <laughs> vice presidents in IBM, in my opinion. Um, what I'd like to do now is uh, continue the, uh, the thread that Al's started and uh, share with you some thoughts from, uh, you know, CTO's perspective, a little bit more uh, on the technology, and uh, also want some demos for you. Some of these are uh, a little more, a little deeper than others, but um, hopefully they'll all be entertaining for you. So <clears throat> before we get to the demos, I want to just augment uh, a little bit some of the thoughts that Al talked about. Al was speaking very much, um, you know, touching a lot of developments in the industry, in particular from a business perspective. And I want to just maybe uh, spin a little bit from a technology perspective, where the industry is going. And the first thing I want to mention is that we live in really amazing times, like breathtaking, astounding times. But somehow, because of the way it's evolving, it's so subtle, we don't even realize it. I want to give you a few examples just to scratch the surface. Today, machine learning is being used in cancer care. Um, machine learning is being used to dive into hundreds of billions of chemical base pairs to study the genomics of cancer patients. It's being used to read through huge numbers, tens of millions of research papers that are being published by the medical research community. And in all of this in the in the goal of, of servicing and helping millions of cancer patients. How many research papers do you think your family doctor reads per year? One? Two? Five? IBM's Watson computer reads 30,000 research papers an hour. That's a real number, 30,000 an hour. We don't see that in our daily lives, but it's there. It's real today. 
Self-driving cars. Sounds like something in the future you read about in the paper every day. Here's the fascinating thing. We think about self-driving cars as something for the future, maybe five years from now, ten years from now. But self-driving cars are on the roads today in San Francisco, in New York, on the streets of Beijing. Prototypes are going through the final phases of evaluation, getting out the final kinks so that we can buy them in a few years. So we think of it as future because we can't buy one yet. The reality is it's on the roads today, and they've driven hundreds of thousands of miles. These self-driving cars have probably driven more than I have in my life, and they're probably safer than I am as a driver. And by the way, they don't need to be perfect. They just need to be better drivers than all of us. And natural language services. This is one that maybe is a little bit closer to us. We speak to our phones. Sometimes we speak to our computers. I've got a TV at home. It's an Android TV. I speak to my TV, and sometimes it even understands me. It brings up the right TV show. So all of this stuff is upon us today, and it's getting real. It's really real. So you, know, you come to a conference like this, and people stand up and talk about AI, and you go, eh, what does it have to do with me? Well, that's that futuristic stuff. I want to show you an example of what I consider to be breathtaking technology. Breathtaking technology developed by IBM Research. This has been underway since 2012. And this is an AI system that actually engages in debates on serious topics with human experts. Serious topics, like, you know, not a chatbot. Serious global concerns. Watch this. This is IBM Project Debater. Real-world problems, a lot of times they don't have a clear bottom-line win. Otherwise, we wouldn't debate things. According to rules set by the candidates themselves... What we are trying to accomplish here is really to demonstrate that we can have a meaningful and valuable discussion between man and machine. We are actually trying to show that a computer system can add, if you want, conversation or decision-making by bringing facts and doing a different kind of argumentation. Hello, Dan. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. The debater system tries to understand the concept over which we are debating. Having analyzed the data, I will argue that we should subsidize music education. When it gets the topic, until you hear the first speech, it's collecting all the possible arguments, trying to remove redundancy. It is about recognizing important issues for society. The system is evolving. The IBM Debater can have all the opinions in the world, but IBM Debater does not pay taxes, and we do. You are speaking at the extremely fast rate of 218 words per minute. There is no need to hurry. The value of the technology is really to allow decision makers to take more informed decisions. There is a territory which is uncharted to some extent, and this is where we are now. Thank you for listening. All right, isn't that awesome? It's unbelievable. Just crazy. Just crazy. All right, now, if you're watching stuff like that, if you're like me, you know, you look at this and you go, wow, that's super exciting. That's amazing, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me because I don't need one of those in my kitchen and I don't need one of those in my living room and I don't need one of those at work. So, you know, that's nice. It's, it's something for somebody else. Maybe somebody else in the world needs that. But I want to suggest to you that actually all this machine learning talk and AI talk is something that you need. 
Um, and maybe not for the use cases that I just showed you, which are maybe a little bit more flamboyant and exciting, self-driving cars and project debater, but you know, a lot of us, most of us who are in the data business, we're in the business of looking for trends, looking for correlations. You know, are things going up? Are things going down? Is A connected to B? I want to segment my customers. I want to see where the market's going. I want to see where my product revenues are going. I want to understand the correlation between customers and sales forces and marketing campaigns and products and so on. So those sorts of things are important to us. And in fact, the techniques that we've all been using for the last 30 years have, for, I mean, they've been somewhat effective, but to a large extent, they, they are quite lacking. I came across this, um, this little commercial, which I'm going to show you. It's a lot of fun, but I think it, it actually, even though it's a fun commercial, it actually touches on the problem very elegantly. So think about how you use data in your job and how you're trying to do a lot of those problems in prediction and correlation and understanding the relationships between two different things that are may or may not be correlated or maybe loosely correlated and have a look at this. Here we go. Customer data? You got it. Tons of it. And you know your customer. Take Jack, for example. Jack loves waffles. How do you know? Because Sunday Jack said so on social. And last Friday, he'd been searching for a waffle maker in your online store. Boom! Now you're ready to talk to him. Because you know Jack. Except, Jack was actually just carving up for a 5K at the end of the week. He's not so much a waffle freak as a fitness freak. But you already assigned him to a target audience, so you're still talking to him about all things waffle. Jack deletes the email without opening it. And then he ignores your SMS. And closes your ad. So you don't know Jack. And to give Jack an experience that would have actually been right for him, you should have had an AI-powered platform that connects all your data to show that he's not obsessed with brunch, he's obsessed with running. And you also would have known that Jack is actually Jacqueline. If your marketing can't make sense of your data, you don't know Jack. <laughs> awesome. So I love that video because it just clarifies the problem with, with correlating events and, you know, you think this guy is into the waffles, he's really into the jogging, and actually he's not even a guy. It's great. And this is, this is part of the problem that we have today when we look at data and we look at trends in data. You know, we make these uh, incorrect assertions around the correlations. And as my kids often remind me, because they're in university right now, they say, Daddy, you know, uh, you know, correlation doesn't infer causality and all these things. So we have to be careful. All of this is upon us, as Al mentioned, because there's this big inversion that's going on um, in the industry. And all of these algorithms that we're going to talk about and all, this, all the algorithms that we build up to in the ladder to AI have, for the most part, been around since the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Probably a lot of the people in the room right now weren't even born when a lot of these algorithms were invented. You know, linear regression, regression logistic regression, uh, random forest, Bayes, simple Bayesian networks, neural networks, even recurrent neural networks, all invented in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, actually. So what's happened now is this big inflection, and you know, we think of this stuff as high-tech. High-tech, what high-tech? This stuff is 30 years old. Why is this high-tech? It's high-tech because the availability of data, all these algorithms need data, and now we got data. And all of you are in this room because you work with lots of data. And we got data, and the other thing that these algorithms need is compute. We've got compute on tap like never before in the history of the world, and for lots of reasons, that's going to be going exponential in the, uh, in the next few years.
Okay, so let's jump into some demos. This first one is maybe the weakest of the demos. I say weakest in the sense that I'm going to show you the least tech. This is more of a visual, uh, a visual presentation. And I want to talk about the platform layer. And in this case, I'm going to show you IBM Cloud Private for data. And this is the private cloud that you can deploy inside your own four walls. You don't have to go to someone else's data center. You don't have to put your data in the hands of some other operator. You can keep your data inside your own organization and deploy this full-service cloud environment. And it's actually easier to use in a public cloud because every time you want to use a new service, you don't have to start pulling out a credit card and registering for yet another service. So let's have a look at uh, this private cloud environment, which will allow you to deploy data relational databases and NoSQL databases, proprietary ones from IBM that we think have additional value, and also the open source ones that you know and love, whether that's MongoDB or Redis or Postgres and so on. And of course, the whole slew of the IBM uh, DB2 line. So here you can see, well, we're starting up the uh, introduction, and you'll see here a number of the um, elements of the IBM Cloud Private for Data. And one of the first things you're going to notice is the elegance of the interface. This has been designed by some of the best graphic designers in the world. And the presentation that you see actually changes depending on your persona and your job. So if you're an analyst, you get one job. If you're a data store, you get another job. You get another uh, presentation. You can see the health of your data. You can get real-time actual notifications on your data as there are problems. You can get conversations from your colleagues if you want to collaborate on data projects. You're able to access data inside of this private cloud across the systems. And um, if you look at all the tables and all the, all the systems, even if it's in a NoSQL database or a relational database and so on, so you can see some of the examples of uh, looking at the, the data in these systems. And once the data is in these systems and you can see them, you can begin to transform them and merge them. So here you can see a view looking at data in different columns of different databases, and you can begin to form data transformation pipelines in a graphical manner like this. So it's drag and drop, take the column from this table, take the column from that table, do this transformation suite of machine learning tools on top of that. And again, I'm going to have another de a demo where I'm going to actually show you some source code and we'll go a little deeper. Now, one of the interesting things, you know, people like to talk about cl public clouds and private clouds, uh, you know, that's all nice, but if, if you're like most companies, you can't simply take all of your data systems and move them en masse overnight from where they are blah to somewhere else blah. It's just too big a job. It'll take too long. There may be some systems that you're not allowed to move into a public cloud for you know, policy reasons, security reasons, or maybe you know, a certain line of business is not yet ready or they don't have the manpower to move a system into a public cloud or a private cloud. So what do you do with that? And you've got all these systems. If you're a large company, you have systems all over the world, maybe hundreds of data systems and of all different kinds and shapes and vendors. 
So how do you get on this ladder to AI when your data is spread all over the world? So to address that particular problem, we're very proud to tell you today about a new technology that we're about to deliver on November 9th called data virtualization. And the idea of data virtualization is to give you the ability to see all of your data that's on-premises, in standalone systems, or in a private cloud, or outside of your organization, in public clouds of various vendors, data that's sitting in databases and repositories of all kinds and shapes, you know, Oracle and SQL Server and DB2 and Atiza and MongoDB and Redis, all this data in all these different places around the world and be able to have access to it and see it and control the, 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 control the security on it and query it at once with a single query statement, with a single SQL statement, get a result on five systems, 15 systems, 100 systems. And that's the transformation that we're making, which we'll be uh, delivering soon. And through that transformation, you'll be able to query all your data anywhere. You'll be able to query many databases at once with a single statement, even if they're in different kinds of databases. You'll get a massive speed up in performance because you'll actually be able to have these systems working together. So for example, if I have 20 data servers, some are SQL Server and some are Oracle and some are DB2, and I can issue one SQL statement and put them all to work and get the benefit of the combined processing power of all of those systems together and do that in a fully secure manner. So I want to show you a demo of this data virtualization technology. And let me set up the demo for you. I'd like you to imagine that you are now working for the day. You're going to have a job for the day in the Capital Mercantile Bank of New York. I should have changed that to Capital Mercantile Bank of Kansas City. <laughs> but Eric, Capital Mercantile Bank of New York. They got branches all over the world, and they store their data in three data centers around the world, in Hursley, California, in Toronto, Canada, and in, ha and in San Jose, California. And the data, for historical reasons, happens to be a mishmash of databases, including MySQL, Informix, and DB2. Now, everything I'm going to show you in this demo is real and actually was set up this way except for one thing, which is there is no Capital Mercantile Bank of New York. The bank doesn't exist. Everything else in this demo is real. We really did set up three different da data locations. We set up over 100 databases representing different branches of the bank. We stored the data in a mix of DB2 and Formix and MySQL in those three cities. And every one of these databases holds two and a half years of data with 1,500 data points per day. And we'd like to see how we can virtualize across these over 100 databases and create a really simple ecosystem where now all of a sudden, for the first time, all this data is available on tap, suddenly available. It's like, bam. All right, let's watch the demo. Here we go. Data virtualization. Okay, so we're going to log into the data virtualization console, and the first thing it's going to do is it's going to bring up a view of all of our data sources. Every one of those circles represents a database at the Capital Mercantile Bank of New York. The bank is fake, the databases are real. There's over 100 of those circles because there's over 100 databases, and you'll see a red dot in the middle. That's the, um, the service node. So applications connect into that red dot, and they think they're connecting into a single database. They have no idea. The application doesn't need to know that there's 100 
hundred plus databases there. Okay, so now let's go to the data view and uh, it'll show us the kinds of databases we have and you'll see indeed there's a mix of DB2, Informix, and MySQL and we could scroll down and it would show us all 130 some databases that are in this demonstration. Now let's go to the SQL, uh, SQL editor which is one of the panels in the, uh, in the console and run some SQL. So every one of these 130 databases has a transaction table for bank transactions. And here we have a SQL statement that's going to um, execute and query the bank transactions table to find out how many transactions were run at each day of the bank. And within four seconds, I mean, you probably missed it, within four seconds we got a result, over 100 databases, just like that. And look at the SQL. The SQL is only querying a single table called the bank transactions table. Amazing. Now let's go and do a more aggressive experiment now in our studio. This is a very popular machine learning environment. We're going to connect in with a JDBC connection and connect into the data virtualization service. It looks like it thinks it's connecting to a single database and it's going to issue this fairly complicated SQL statement that's going to generate a number of aggregates and do a number and uh, doing a, a grouping operation and store the result in a data frame. And once we've got the data in a data frame, we can do all kinds of machine learning with it, we can do graphing and so on. So let's run this, uh, this R script. Again, it thinks it's connecting to just a single database. It has no idea. It's querying that bank transactions table again. And within 16 seconds, it's going to return and give us a view, a two and a half year view of transactions at the bank showing us revenue, average transaction size, and the number of transactions as they varied over time across those two and a half years. Isn't that amazing? And that, again, that's over 100 databases that were queried. And uh, our studio didn't have to know that. Your applications don't have to know that there's 130 databases. And all those databases are collaborating together to produce the result. That's data virtualization. Awesome. Okay, so that was data virtualization. So I showed you a little bit of um, a graphical view into the private cloud. I showed you a, a running demo of data virtualization with 100 databases. And now I'd like to show you something else. Let's go look at what this all means for the, um, for the, uh, the coder in you, the developer in you who wants to build machine learning applications and build models and deploy those models. Let's have a look inside. Now, one of the big problems that companies have is you know, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the machine learning environments today are built on open source, um, open source packages with Python and Jupyter Notebooks and RStudio and so on. But the problem is you know, every developer's got their favorite. And if you have a team of data scientists, you know, most companies don't have one data scientist. They have three, four, five, 20. And everybody's got their favorite kit. And this guy's doing one thing and that guy's doing something else. And how the heck do they get access to the data? So let's have a look at how the Watson Studio technology, which is part of the IBM Cloud Private for Data, it's, it's the machine learning layer of IBM Cloud Private for Data. Let's see how this helps with this uh, collaboration problem while still focusing and enabling you with the open source packages that you know and love. So let's watch this. Here we go. Watson Studio Decoder. Okay, so everything Watson Studio projects. You have a project and one or more data scientists can collaborate on that project. And when you log in to the community page of, of Watson Studio, the first thing you see is a whole collection of sample uh, projects and sample 
notebooks for Jupyter, Zeppelin, and our studio that you can use as templates and examples, especially if you're relatively new to data science. So let's go open one of these uh, projects. We have a project that that's preset up here, and we're going to open that up, and it will show us. Um, we'll open up the Jupyter notebook, and you'll see this is uh, what the projects include. All of these assets for you know the data sources and the notebooks, the R scripts, and so on. But we're going to open up a particular Jupyter notebook that is a machine learning project for credit card evaluation. So you're going to use this if somebody calls you up and you want to know if this customer is likely to be a, a good candidate or a bad candidate for, for credit, you'll be able to use this machine learning model. The first thing it's going to do is load some libraries like Scikit and Brunel and so on. And then um, the next thing that the script is going to do, the Jupyter Notebook is going to do, is it's going to load a CSV file with some training data. And we can see some stats on the training data here. It gives you some metadata about the, uh, what's in that CSV file and a little sample of the columns. And now, once we've done that, we can use open source packages like Brunel and Seaboard to start doing visualization of this data. So you can see some examples here where we're looking at uh, the likelihood of defaulting on, on a loan. We can look at a histogram of what are the characteristics of the users, to what extent are, do they default on loans. They're good, they defaulted in the past, but not so much anymore. Um, we can start looking at um, more statistical elements, like uh, what's the mean amount of money that, that they default on? You know, they get to a certain threshold, $5,000, ah, can't pay anymore. You know, what's the mean, what's the standard deviation on that default? So you can see that there. We start looking at the default rates by location. So it turns out New York is the highest rate of, of defaulting. And Missouri and, uh, and Kansas, pretty good, pretty good. And okay, so once we've done that, that's all about the visualization. Now we can go into our um, something a little heavier dutier and start building a machine learning model with Scikit. And in this case, because of the nature of the data, instead of using something like a linear regression or uh, neural net, in this case, we're going to use a random forest, which, which is a good example for data like this that's not too deep. And we're going to pick out 11 features that we'll use to build this random forest on. And we'll train the, the model on this uh, CSV data that we have. And once the model's been created, and by the way, we'll make uh, an example of this Jupyter Notebook available to you after the conference. And once we've got the, the model created, we can save it. And now it'll show up as a saved uh, model that every, all the people in my organization who are collaborators on this project now have access to. They can use it, they can use it as an example, they can extend it, they can collaborate with me on um, transforming the model and, and, and evolving it over time. Great, okay, and so there you can see it in the models list, <coughs> and not only have we created the model, but now we can see how it's performing. As we're using it day to day, we can see it's 72% effective. That's actually not bad for a machine learning model. Um, you don't want these models to be too accurate because then you're probably overfitting the model to the data. That's not a good, not a good sign. Here's an example where we want to do some real-time scoring. So we have an example on the left. You want to see if this guy is a good candidate for, uh, for credit. So we run the data through the model and it shows us that, yeah, this guy's got a, about a 70% chance of paying his bills, 30% chance of defaulting on his bills. So we can make a decision based on the model uh, whether we want to give him credit or not. We can also take this model and apply it to batch environments and generate scripts on it. So 
in this model, we're gonna, going to give it an input uh, data set that gets loaded as part of the batch job and store the results in an output script. And you'll see all the code. Um, and once we put the inputs and the outputs, the scripting code gets automatically generated. Bam. See that? Do you see that code get generated? Just like that. Okay, now we've got this script generated, and we can run it anytime we want with new data, or we can deploy it as a microservice using Watson Machine Learning. So giving you, that gives you a little bit of a feel. You know, if you're familiar with these tools, Jupyter Notebooks in particular, that probably made sense to you. If you're not so familiar with notebooks, that might have gone by a little quickly. But again, I'll give you a link to uh, the scripts after the, uh, after the conference so you can see some of the stuff in action. Okay, very good. All right, so I wanna go to one more demo uh, in the context of the um, application developer. The previous demo was really showing you about building models and deploying models on their own. But, you know, really the holy grail of all this stuff, the philosopher's stone, is to push the analytics as close to the data as possible. And the data itself is sitting usually in a repository, like a relational database. So one of the technologies that we've been exploring in our research team is can we find ways to build these models automatically and allow you to invoke them directly in SQL. So they're actually running inside of the database. I'm gonna show you an example of this right now. And in this example, we're gonna be using the example of a, uh, of a neural network. A neural network is a software mechanism to model what your brain does. Your brain is a collection of 100 billion neurons. Every one of those neurons connects to about 1,000 others. And through the neural network of your brain, you're able to form memories, to reason, and to learn. And that's exactly what we want to achieve in software artificial neural networks, which look a lot less uh, interesting. They look something like this in code, at least conceptually. Um, but these neural networks really aim to achieve much the same goal as the neural networks of your brain. And there are actually many different kinds of neural networks, uh, recurrent neural networks and deep feed-forward neural networks and so on. There's a whole bunch of them. In this model, uh, we want to use a deep feed-forward neural network to mine your data for things like similarity matching, dissimilarity matching, and so on. To make this work, we will build an unsupervised machine learning model over your data on the columns of interest, the columns you tell us are of interest. So let's say you want to know about similarity matching for a particular situation. You tell us, hey, have a look at these columns and these tables. That's all you have to tell us we will go and infer the machine learning model from that. And once the model is built, you can then invoke it directly from SQL. So I'm going to show you an example right now of just how powerful this can be. It sounds, I guess, kind of geeky and SQL and machine learning, and, but let's see practically how much this can help. So in this example, we're going to look specifically at the topic of similarity matching. Is A similar to B? How similar are two things in data? So for example, um, how similar do I look to Al? Well, we're both middle-aged, both kind of, you know. We look a little bit similar, but how similar? Can we score that? Can we evaluate that? Can we put that into real math? And a little bit like that example earlier where, you, where we um, had the picture of the dog that was somewhat splotchy, machine learning models can do a pretty good job at filling in the blanks. 
Now you could do a lot of this without machine learning, and the way that people uh, historically have done similar similarity matching in SQL is with range predicates. So you could just you run a SQL statement, and let's say I'm looking for somebody, I'm trying to find a person um, with certain attributes. You know, I know the guy's about 50 years old, and he's about six feet tall. I could I could kind of look for that in SQL, plus or minus. You know, look for a guy who's 60 years old plus or minus five years. Look for someone who's six feet tall, plus or minus a few inches. I'm using these range predicates, you know, plus or minus. I can try to find people who are similar to each other. But with machine learning and similarity matching built right into the model, we can do a lot better. So let's watch this little example. trick where we're going to compare traditional SQL with range predicates to the similarity, similarity modeling with um, machine learning. And in this example, a crime has been committed. A criminal by the name of Deadhead Fred, who shows up in the middle as suspect two. He has walked into a bank, pulled out a gun, and robbed the bank. Now, Deadhead Fred isn't too bright. He walked into the bank with no mask, Pulls out the gun, robs the bank. There's like 50 witnesses saw this guy in broad daylight. He took the cash. He ran out the front door. The police show up, and they take statements from the 50 witnesses. And the witnesses describe him. Yeah, he's about 50 years old, about 5 foot 10, about 180 pounds, blah, blah, blah. So the first thing that the police are going to do is they're going to go back to the police office, and they've got a database there of known criminals. And they're going to search through this database of known criminals and try to find a guy who matches the description that the witnesses gave. But the thing is, they know that these descriptions are kind of approximate. When people say he was about 180 pounds, yeah, it's about 180 pounds, plus or minus. You know, he's middle-aged, he looked like he was 50 years old, plus or minus. So if they're using SQL, old-fashioned SQL, they'll put in some range predicates. His age, 50 years, plus or minus. His weight, plus or minus, so on. Okay, so here we are in the police database. We're going to try to find the criminal Deadhead Fred. Of course, I don't yet know his name. So let's try finding him first using traditional SQL. We're going to fill in this, the um, description that the witnesses gave. He's white. He's 51 years old. His height, 5 foot 9. And we're going to search for him in the database using traditional SQL. And in the middle of the screen there, you can see the actual SQL statement that they're using, filled with piles and piles of these range predicates, plus or minus this and plus or minus that. And when they ran the SQL statement, they actually found 19 candidates, 19 criminals in the crimes database that seemed to match the description, plus or minus, that the witnesses gave. Okay, great. So they found 19 uh, possible possible candidates, and if we scroll through the list, what we'll see is that in this list of 19, you will actually find Deadhead Fred. He's in the list. He's a repeat offender. They know him from before, and he is in the list, and now if they go and they try to track down those 19 criminals, they will eventually find Deadhead Fred. That's great. Not bad. Not bad. Let's try the same thing now using the machine learning model that was built up on the columns of the database. So we're running the same query now, except with the machine learning model, instead of all those predicates. First thing you'll notice is it got a lot more hits. Because everybody is somewhat similar. 
Some candidates in the database are super similar and some are much further. But the number one hit ranked by similarity matching is Deadhead Fred. He's no longer one of 19. He's the number one hit. Now, let's go and look at the SQL statement. It's way, way shorter, way shorter. Okay, now what if the witnesses got the guy's weight wrong? What if they said he looked like he was 195 pounds? Maybe he put on weight since the last time they arrested him. I kind of resemble that remark, that remark. So he put on weight. So now, if they go and search for this guy with the wrong weight, or actually the right weight, but the wrong weight is in the database, they find a much shorter list of candidates, seven candidates, and Deadhead Fred isn't there at all. Doesn't show up in the query. So good old-fashioned SQL with range predicates no longer finds this guy because the weight that the witnesses described was too far off from the weight of Deadhead Fred that was in the police database. Let's try it again with the wrong weight and the machine learning model. Run the query again. Bam. Lots of candidates, and Deadhead Fred is still the number one hit. Why? Because even though he is less similar now on weight, he's still a great hit on all the other attributes that they were searching for. So from a similarity matching perspective, we're still able to find Deadhead Fred, and that's the benefit of the machine. Okay, I wanted to close with um, one little thought for you. Um, you know, Al spoke to you about the business, and we showed you some demos of cloud private cloud infrastructure, data virtualization, machine learning models, um, and, and also extensions to SQL. Why, why are we showing all this to you, and why should you care? Our hope is that you know, you'll attend talks like this and conferences like this, and you'll see new technology that you like, and you'll think about it, you go, yeah, I could use that in my work. And you can do what you do much better. You can go back to work and become a high-tech superhero. You'll do your job better, you'll make your colleagues look good, you'll make your boss look good, you'll help your customers. You'll do things that you were never able to do. So with that, um, on that happy spirit, I put together a little video for you to wrap things up on a high note, and I uh, hope you'll enjoy it. Think about how you can use new some of these new technologies and be a great success. Here we go.
All right, very good. So listen, guys, I'm going to turn it over, back over to Al to wrap up. Thank you for coming today. It was a pleasure being here in Kansas City. And uh, Al, back to you. I don't have much, much left. I appreciate everybody attending today, uh, again, in my hometown. So you, you let me sleep in my bed for once. I appreciate that. And, uh, but we've included information. I think this is the last slide, right, that we put together. Uh, the last one just has your, your name and contact stuff. Okay, well, this is the last slide that I really wanted to get you. So you can take access to all the information that we pre presented. You can, you can, you know, go out there. You can leverage ICP for data. You can even uh, leverage uh, some machine learning samples that we have out there. And look, we'll be around for a bit, answer any questions that you guys might have, see what we can do to help. Um, and uh, thank you again so much. And if you get, a, get an opportunity, please listen to the podcast. I'd appreciate it. There's my contact information. I do answer it on LinkedIn. So happy to help. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. for listening to the making data simple podcast where we make data fun be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes remember the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of ibm until next time over and out.